welcome to the second podcast of highlights from day one of ULAR 2022. My name's Laura Coates, and in this podcast, I would like to review what I felt were some of the key sessions and papers of interest from the CSF perspective, relating specifically to psoriatic arthritis. There were some terrific sessions today covering a wide range of topics and data, and I hope you find this podcast both interesting and informative. As such, as I go through the sessions and posters I've highlighted for you, I'll also mention others that you may find of interest. The differential contribution of IL-6 and IL-17 pathways to the pathogenesis of PSA is not fully understood. As such, I'd like to highlight the first of today's sessions of interest from Professor Ian McInnes, which assesses the relationship between IL-6 and IL-17 pathway modulation and different clinical outcomes after upadacitinib treatment in patients who were conventional DMARD inadequate responders and biologic DMARD inadequate responding PSA patients. This study looked at the different pathway modulation in patients who were treated with upadacitinib who had active psoriatic arthritis. They showed different profiles in the relationship between IL-6 and IL-17, and with clinical outcomes between the two groups of patients, those who were biologic DMARD naive and those who were biologic DMARD inadequate responders. In the conventional DMARD failure patients who had not yet had a biologic, baseline IL-17A, IL-17F, and BD2 levels correlated with each other, and with the PASI score looking at psoriasis, while IL-6 appeared independent from the IL-17 pathway and correlated with the DAS28 CRP looking at peripheral joints. However, in the patients who were biologic DMARD inadequate responders, the baseline IL-17A level was significantly elevated compared to those who'd not yet been treated with a biologic, but this weakly correlated with other cytokines and showed no, no correlation with PASI or skin scores. The second of today's session I would like to highlight focuses on common comorbidities of psoriatic arthritis. Kristen Senes et al. assesses the association between baseline cardiovascular risk and incidence rates of major adverse cardiovascular events and malignancies in patients with psoriatic arthritis and psoriasis receiving tofacitinib. Their findings support the assessment of cardiovascular risk in patients with PSA and psoriasis, and enhanced monitoring for malignancies in those who have a raised cardiovascular risk. So in this study, in patients receiving tofacitinib who had either a diagnosis of PSA or of psoriasis alone, it was clear that raised cardiovascular risk and metabolic syndrome at baseline were potentially associated with higher risk of MACE and malignancy. So there seems to be an important link within the comorbidities of these patients with psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis. Following on from the two abstracts I've just highlighted, there were several posters of interest with regard to efficacy and safety in PSA. Starting with a look at some of the latest Rizankizumab data, both Christensen et al. and Oster et al. present 52-week data from the Keepsake 1 and Keepsake 2 trials, respectively. Also looking at Keepsake 1 and 2, Marola et al. report the proportion of patients with active PSA 
treated with rismakizumab compared to placebo who achieved ACR20 and looking at their baseline demographics and concomitant or prior medication subgroups. So in Keepsake 1, we've seen that continuous rismakizumab treatment will provide durable efficacy and a consistent safety profile through 52 weeks of treatment in patients with active PSA who were conventional DMARD inadequate responders. Christensen et al. also evaluated the impact of rismakizumab compared to placebo on health-related quality of life, fatigue, and work productivity in patients with psoriatic arthritis who'd had an inadequate response to one or two biologics and or at least one conventional synthetic DMARD. And that was a combination of data from Keepsake 1 and 2 in poster 1042. Looking at the longer term data from Keepsake 2, we've again seen that continuous rismakizumab treatment resulted in maintained efficacy responses and a similar consistent safety profile through 52 weeks of treatment in the Keepsake 2 trial, very similar to the Keepsake 1 trial. Obviously, the difference here is that some of these patients were biologic inadequate responders. And then finally, looking at another combination analysis, this was looking at data from the combined Keepsake 1 and Keepsake 2 and looked at ACR20 response within varying different baseline subgroups. Rizmkizumab demonstrated efficacy over and above placebo with an outcome of ACR20 at week 24, regardless of the baseline demographics, regardless of concomitant conventional DMARD use at baseline or of prior biologic use. Marola et al. also evaluate the achievement of minimal disease activity, its components and achievement of the disease activity in PSA low disease and remission outcomes in patients receiving rizinkizumab or placebo, again in a combined analysis of Keepsake 1 and 2 trials in poster 1029. Moving on now to take a closer look at some of the gazelkmab data presented by Professor Philip Meese today. In the first poster, Mies et al. report details of radiographic assessments comprising reading session three through week 100, including relationships between radiographic changes and measures of clinical outcomes. In the second poster, they assess maintenance of gazelkamab effect on symptoms of axial involvement in biologic naive PSA patients with investigator diagnosed sacroiliitis through two years. So looking at the radiographic study first, this took data from biologic naive patients with active PSA who'd been enrolled specifically into a study looking at radiographic damage and were therefore enriched for patients with a greater risk of radiographic progression. Gazelkamab 100 milligrams, either the Q4 or Q8 week dose was associated with low rates of radiographic progression through two years of follow-up. Looking at changes in potential axial PSA, this is obviously a controversial area. So in patients in the peripheral PSA trials who had active psoriatic arthritis, but also had investigator-confirmed sacroiliitis on imaging, gazelkman was shown to provide durable improvement 
and axial symptoms measured by the BASDI, the ASDAS and the spinal pain score through week 100, with substantial proportions of patients achieving and maintaining clinically meaningful improvement. Obviously, we don't know how much of that improvement relates specifically to axial inflammation and how much may be impacted on by their peripheral disease, but we're hoping future studies will look at this in more detail. There was a wealth of data on gazelkmab in PSA in the post view 7 session today, and below are a few I thought it may be of interest for you to view. Finally, from an efficacy and safety and PSA point of view today, I'd like to highlight two posters providing data on the TIC2 inhibitor Ducrapacitinib from their phase two study. Kavner et al. further evaluate the effect of Ducrapacitinib on achievement of individual components of minimal disease activity. And Mies et al. evaluate the safety and efficacy of Ducrapacitinib in part B of the phase two PSA trial from weeks 16 to 52. Firstly, looking at MDA, this was data from the phase two trial, including just over 200 patients with a diagnosis of psoriatic arthritis and active disease. It's clear that patients treated with Ducrapacitinib achieved a higher rate of MDA response compared to those treated with placebo at week 16. When that was examined in more detail, more patients receiving Ducrapacitinib compared to placebo achieved the threshold for each of the individual MDA components. And then looking at that longer term outcome from the phase two study. So this is from week 16 to 52 in the phase two trial. Patients who'd completed week, week 16 and part A of the study could then enroll into an optional double blind period up until week 52. So from week 16 to 52 in this blinded phase two study, no new safety signals were observed with continuous Ducrapacitinib treatment when compared to the zero to 16 week data in part A of the trial. Fleischmann et al. also presents safety of Ducrapacitinib, an oral selective tyrosine kinase 2 inhibitor as assessed by laboratory parameters with results from a phase two trial in psoriatic arthritis combined with two phase three trials in psoriasis in poster 1040. A final couple of mentions for posters of interest presenting data from other therapies, apart from those I've already mentioned today, in psoriatic arthritis. Richland et al. provide data on the relationships between disease duration and radiographic progression among patients with PSA treated with secukinumab in future five. Mies et al. also present data on relationships between inhibition of radiographic progression and achievement of low disease activity or remission and their core components in patients with PSA treated with secukinumab in future five over the first 24 weeks. And finally, Tillett et al. look at changes in disease activity and patient reported outcomes in PSA patients treated with ixekizumab in a real world US cohort. So it's great to see so much relevant PSA cytokine signaling content. I hope you've enjoyed this roundup of day one PSA data. If you haven't already, please join me for a roundup of today's RA 
and AXPAR data in separate podcasts. You can also download our EULAR 2022 highlights brochure from cytokinesignaling.com to see the abstracts that we've selected for you for the whole of the Congress. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.